If the vaccine program does change or we need to adapt our software or more people sign up to use the vaccine uh, booking software, it's very, very hard to like say no to that or turn away from it, uh, right? So I've definitely felt, you know, both the pressure myself and then felt awful for almost having put like the team through it in a sense. I don't think any of us quite realised the Herculean effort that would be required over such a long time to actually deliver it. Welcome to Secret Leaders, the UK startup podcast from Infamous Media. I'm Dan Murray-Serta, and this is the show where we bring you insights and stories from the UK's most impactful founders. Today, I'm really excited to be speaking with Lawrence Bargery, the CTO and co-founder of AccuRex, a health tech startup that's been on the front line of the fight against COVID. AccuRex helps healthcare teams communicate with their patients through features like text messaging and video calling. Their software has exploded since COVID with an astonishing 99% of GP surgeries using their software. And if you've booked a COVID jab, there's a good chance you've used their technology. Now, in this conversation, Lawrence takes us through the company's journey from solving the wrong problems to its current place as a linchpin in the UK's vaccine rollout program. And yes, it's been as rapid and challenging as you'd think. But first, back to the start, when Lawrence was a fresh-faced software engineer participating in the Entrepreneur First incubator and being introduced to potential co-founders. This is where Accurex came from. Yeah, I met, I met Jacob sort of a week into the program, so I'd spent a week with uh, sort of another co-founder uh, and then saw that he was still looking for someone and was very, very much interested in what he was proposing at the time. Back then, it was something completely different. So we started off looking at antibiotic resistance. So huge problem, right? Like lots of people know about it, that bacteria are becoming more resistant to the antibiotics we use because generally we overuse them. And like super similar problem to climate change, massive externality, individual you know, interaction. Dan, you go to the doctor. They a really shortened time. It might be viral, it might be bacterial cough. You get a prescription in that moment. Doesn't actually matter too much. But net, if that keeps happening, obviously overall we all sort of like suffer. So we we were looking to see if we could try and improve those prescribing decisions, make essentially decision support software, and also um, provide information to patients about this is why you haven't been given an antibiotic today. We spent the first year and a half of the company basically on this idea. So, you know, we built out the software. We built out a really good but small team. We were only sort of six or seven people. And ultimately, we plugged away at that for, you know, a really good amount of time. I wouldn't say we, we sort of felt like we gave up easily. We were, you know, going to, going to practices, trying to install, trying to get usage. But back then, a good day was when we hit double digits sort of usage of the tool and we'd celebrate 10 a day. And I think around sort of October time, uh, 2017, we just decided this just isn't this just isn't working. Ultimately, it's a massive problem, but the market's not there. There aren't the right either carrot or stick to change people's behaviour, um, and so we needed to focus focus on something else. What did you do next then? We got really interested, actually, originally by the idea of skill mix. So we, we knew there was this problem of sort of shortage of GPs. That you know, nurse practitioners and paramedics were fantastic what they do and could actually see a sort of lot of ailments. So we got quite interested by that idea and of those people, so paramedics and nurses doing being able to see more patients and what software they need. But we also really realised we just don't know enough about healthcare or how GPs work. We just we're actually we needed to do more user research. So 
we had this idea to do something super unscalable. I think it came from Jacob and um, myself reading about the early days of Airbnb. And I think they like went round and took the photos themselves of like the listings. And we thought, let's go to two GP practices and just get under their skin and almost do sort of bespoke consulting projects, right, for those practices for free. Turned out two was too many. So we went down to one. And we basically drove to Oxford every single day to this practice called uh, Manor Surgery. And every single day, three or four members of the team went there. We got up really early, got there for sort of surgery opening and phone lines opening for eight o'clock. And we just did everything we could to try and get under the skin of general practice. And we knew, you know, this was one surgery, didn't represent every, every single practice in the country. But just by seeing things rather than even just talking to people, I think we soaked up so much healthcare context. You know, we even did things like buying headphone splitters so we could listen to what was going on in reception at the same time as them seeing calls. And we could observe, you know, seeing things like they're having to spin around on chairs with one phone, you know, between that ear while using the software. And you suddenly realize, actually, the software you're building is so secondary to all these other things you're going on. You know, the way we might interact with software, we're like in front of our computer, properly sat there and focused. And we, we started to build up just so many more ideas of, of things we could do. And actually, that was sort of a three-month period we did that from up till sort of Christmas time, 2017. And then almost what became our biggest problem was, what do we even go after? Because there were just so many things we thought we can add value there or we can, we can do something better there. And whilst we did think that the skill mix idea could be really powerful, Ultimately, we started to feel like, well, biggest problem is going to be both behavior change, but also that you might need to have practice actually hire a bunch more nurses and paramedics to do this. And is, is it just going to be scalable enough? And that's where this idea came from, really, beginning of the year 2018 of what's something super simple we can do that's going to be really powerful and applicable to so many of the problems in, in general practice or in healthcare. And ultimately, that was communication. That was, can we get messages to patients more easily? So you basically went from um, having the solution and trying to figure out if it really was a problem people had to just going in and learning what the problems were and then starting afresh, right? So what was V1 of the Acurex product then? So we, interestingly, when we actually were doing the antibiotic software, we had part of it, which was text messaging. So we had this idea that we were like, patients love leaving with a thing. It's why... Like giving someone a prescription, it sort of signals the end of your consultation, right? So back then in the antibiotic software, we did have a text messaging component. We thought instead of leaving it with a prescription, if you're not prescribed, you, you can leave with a text message with information. So we thought, well, we'll take that text messaging component we had in the antibiotic software and we'll just make it so that anyone can use it in the GP surgery for any use case. So V1 was basically this small floating toolbar where you clicked one button, it automatically took the patient uh, context because we integrated with uh, the sort of um, medical record system. It brought up um, a user interface where it had already pre-filled sort of patient name, the patient's phone number if it was in their record. You've got your text box, fill it in. Hey, Dan, your prescription's ready to collect. And you hit send and it goes back into the patient's record and arrives on your phone. And that was it. It, it couldn't have been more simple. And that's what we were aiming for was that the use case and I guess the, the moment of like value to the user where they realize, hey, this has saved me time. We wanted that to be as short as possible. We'd call it like the aha moment where they get it that this is just say five minutes.
If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So how did you actually get traction with GPs? So obviously you've gone and you've identified that this is a thing and you've started to see that this is going to be good, but that's very different, as you know, from, and you've already experienced, from actually getting people interested in in taking this on board and scaling it. And I guess, how receptive were they as an audience that you're selling into? You know, they is it easier than it seems because not many people do or what's the, what's the case? Yeah, so I mean, in terms of how how it it played out for us, so yeah, you're you're re- you're very right. Obviously, we had this we had this idea, and we we built this SMS um, sort of tool, but we still only had a couple of practices that were using us from the antibiotic days, really. Then, and so you know, we're still talking sort of tens of practices, and obviously, we really wanted to grow this. So we how it started was we made a uh, there's there's a website builder called Wix. We basically sent out um, leaflets across the country. So we we made a sort of leaflet saying, hey, we've got this great SMS tool. It's going to save you loads of time. I think we'd seen from like one of these marketing playbooks. If you make it individualized, you might get a bit more uptake. So we we wrote handwritten post-it notes for the surgery in every single one. And we sent out a thousand flyers and sat there patiently waiting so anyone's going to pick up the phone. Is that you sent out a thousand flyers and a thousand post-it notes individualized, or it was a bunch of flyers, like uh, like 10 to 50 per GP practice and the same post-it? I think we did a, a sort of um, leaflets to each practice, but every single one contained a post-it note. So we had these, you know, like t- team bonding sessions where we'll get some pizza. you got a list of names, a pen, and you're going to write a lot of post-it notes saying, dear Dan, we think this software would be great for you. Thanks, Lawrence. And a couple of yeah, a couple of those those seeds landed. We were lucky enough that a couple of people opened that and thought this this looks interesting. I'll I'll give them a call. 
And so we used this website builder Wix to, for each practice that were keen, spin up a sort of like self-service page. We didn't have a proper self-service flow that anyone could land on. So each time we were spinning up a little mini website for like, you know, Dan's practice. Then we, we sent them to that page that was like individualized self-service flow. And we tried to get them to go through it and install the software themselves. But obviously, you know, a couple of the early ones you're on the phone to seeing what problems they hit, etc. And those are really our first sort of like seeds. And from very early on, I think we, we thought that, or we had strong conviction that if those practices loved the software and would tell other people about it, that would be one of the strongest, strongest ways for us to grow ultimately. And so from quite early into 2018, we worked on just adding some simple features um, which would try and incentivize people to refer the software to others. And so while we did a few more of those leaflets, ultimately, um, a lot of our growth during that year was essentially organic growth. We were incredibly lucky that, yeah, people actually did tell others about it because they felt it was really saving them time. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And I guess, you know, this is the thing, right, you're sort of hustling for some growth. And I know that, you know, you put a lot of energy and effort into personalizing the experience for GPs and stuff. But obviously... The demand for a product like yours pre something like COVID and then post COVID where you've absolutely exploded, very different. So before we get into the quite exciting way that you've actually basically helped the whole of the UK, you know, get on track, what was your business like pre COVID? What did AgRx actually look like? Yeah, absolutely. So I guess if we go go back sort of just before um, the pandemic hit, so sort of early early 2019, I guess we're talking about, sorry, early 2020, we were we were around 25 people. So still still pretty small. And um, we just celebrated hitting 50% of GPs in the country using us or GPs in England using us. So still been really focused on on growth as a company. And that had been, you know, one of our, our main sort of metrics was adoption and trying to still spread spread the word and get as many GPs using us as possible. And we just started to enter the realm of um, sort of asynchronous two-way communication. So we've, we're really strong believers that asynchronous communication is going to play a, a vital role in the sort of future of medicine. There's always going to be, you know, a place for sort of face-to-face and synchronous communication, but the two-way, like the way in lots of the rest of our lives, I can just WhatsApp you, you don't have to reply immediately. That's going to play a big part in the future. And so we've taken um, basically some technology that we built again during the antibiotic days, which was sort of this concept of a patient filling out a survey um, and we turned that into a remote asthma survey. So, you know, every year GP practices need to check in on how their asthmatics are doing. They're, they're incentivized to do so. We try to take the, the, the really fundamental questions that an asthmatic needs to go through each year about how they're managing with their asthma. Is it going okay? And turn that into a survey just via a link that the patient could do. So around then, we basically just started turning that on for, for sort of every practice in the country, basically, and allowing them to like manage their asthmatics remotely where possible. And that was starting to go in some sense of a sort of very, very early concept of a practice inbox where they could manage all these responses that, that come in from their asthmatic patients. Okay, so that is all, you know, pre-2020. Yeah, exactly. Where were you when you first really started thinking about COVID as a potential business problem for you to solve? I definitely remember around uh, sort of February time having some chats internally about it. 
And I think we, we maybe even like did put a sort of thought piece out there, but it was still, it still felt very much like one of those things we were just, like a lot of product ideas, you're just sort of talking about. And then I remember incredibly clearly, so we have a, a, a team dinner every, every Thursday of the first Thursday of the month. And we were at a restaurant in London and the sort of like the whole team gathered together. Um, and quite late on in dinner, I remember our, our investor director, so Arena from, from Atomico, WhatsApping us an article that a Sequoia had wrote, uh, written about um, Black Swan events, and also saying then afterwards, is, is there something we should be doing? Should we be helping at least just text information about COVID to patients or something? And so my co-founder, Jacob, and I had a little chat and we, we were like, maybe maybe really should like do something about this. What, whatever it was at the time, it really sort of like triggered a bit more with us at that moment. And we thought like, this is something we, we need to lean into. And so I think on the way home um, about sort of midnight, Jacob was like firing off some emails to some, some video providers being like, hey, have you got an API we can use and some details to try out tomorrow? And by the time I got in the next day uh, on the Friday morning, he had like, he's already like playing around with uh, a couple of different APIs and he'd got that glint in his eye, uh, which he, he's very much a product person that he often does of like, uh, I've basically got an idea and he wants to see how quickly we can, we can basically do something in the product. And so we, we decided on that Friday, basically, we want to, we want to lean into this. And so we want to build video consultations and then also take that exact same survey technology I just talked about and release a, a COVID triaging survey to support practices actually trying to work out, hey, Dan, have you been to Italy recently? Are you coughing? Should you come to your appointment ultimately? Got it. And, and you know, before we do get into it then, because so, your, your product's taken a couple of pivots. So how do you describe what your product is today? Like to the layman listening that's never come across you, what is your product? How does it work? So ultimately, our vision is, is that everybody involved in the patient's care can communicate with each other. So whilst we're, we're very clinician-focused today, that's, that's really our ultimate aim. Our sort of biggest product offering right now sits in general practice, and really we provide a, a suite of tools that allow clinicians to communicate with patients and then manage all of those responses. So think of it a bit like a, a Gmail, but for general practice. Do you ever describe it as a, a Slack for X, or have you just been told not to do that? Yeah, you could think of it very much like a Slack as well. Um, I guess one of our key concepts is almost that we have like a pay, like each channel is like a patient almost. Uh, so all of our communication is very much tied to the concept of patient. And we, we believe that sort of patient-centric communication is very much like the way the world's going to go. Got it. Now, my understanding in my research is you got to about 99% market share, no? Yes. Yeah, so I think within about, <laughs> it is pretty rare, definitely not where we thought we'd be, um, you know, looking back. And um, so I think within about sort of four or six weeks of us releasing the, these, this sort of suite of, of COVID tools, and yeah, we've gone up from that sort of 50% point to about 99% of, of GPs using us. And you did it without even having to go to school with Boris Johnson and getting all the contracts. Amazing. <laughs> That's true, Yeah. And how did you actually handle the surge in users as, as a business? Like, what did you learn from that huge growth so fast? We were lucky technically, thing, things held up really well. We, by that time, having got to 50%, we did have a relatively slick self-service or install process and setup process and, and you know, surrounding sort of articles. I think, yes, one thing we learned was that having that in place was, was really good. The other thing we learned was that 
having an incredible support team and investing in both the hiring and, you know, uh, developing those people really, really pays dividends because the tech, obviously, yeah, you can, you can scale up. It's great for me. I, if, you know, more users come on board, you can maybe give your servers a bit more juice and you're done, hopefully. But our support team were four people and they went from 300 tickets a week to 3,000 tickets a week overnight. And it's not because users were struggling. It's just because everyone was getting in touch saying, how do I do this? You know, can you add this feature to video? Most of it was just interest in the product, but there was no way to really like switch that off. And we wanted to still give an incredible level of customer support and responsiveness. And I think that just paid off like so much and also the rest of the team rallying around them. So other people doing support shifts. I remember before we you know, went remote, people pushing massive trolleys of like tea and biscuits over to the support corner because <laughs> they could barely like leave their desk. And I think they just underpinned like the whole effort for me. And I think that's our front door ultimately, right? Like if people have a problem or need feedback, they, they contact our support team and without investing and just having such an amazing team there, we just wouldn't have made it through that time. That makes sense. And how did like this growth and stuff, how did it actually affect your financials? So I know that you ended up doing, you know, a series A, for example, but I mean, you know, had you really thought through the business side enough that actually this massive opportunity created huge margins and massive scalable growth? Or is it something that you were caught off guard with and you're still having to figure out a bit? Yeah, so we, we'd raised our A about a year before um, COVID, but because the team was you know still relatively small, we, we were in an okay sort of position financially. I mean, for us, we, you know, we're, we're a mission-driven company, and so ultimately at that time, what we were thinking about was how can we support the NHS getting through this time? That was like our only, our only you know, aim at that particular moment in time. For us, the, uh, the video consultations, there was in the end actually a national contract for that. So there was some money that we did uh, get in and some revenue from that thing. But also our text message bill, as you might imagine, which we, we paid for at the time, also went, went through the roof. So we also started spending a lot more on that and also things like computes and obviously needed to hire a lot more people. So it actually meant that our burn went up a, a fair amount. But obviously, we, you know, we still kept, still kept a close eye on it. But yeah, we, we were lucky enough, we did have enough money in the bank, we could, we could lean into those opportunities and we're very, very grateful that we, we could be a part of, of trying to help, you know, in a small way at least, the NHS get through a really tough time. What is the current situation then financially? Where, like, where do you see yourselves? So yeah, now, now we're in a position where, so a lot of these, a lot of these features that we, um, we added during that time, we knew that they would, we couldn't sustain them forever being free features and so um, we've grown out our commercial team over the last sort of year or so um, and have taken some of those features we've added and then built other things sort of on top um, and now have a sort of Acurex Plus tier which is broken into sort of five modules and so we're now in a position where we do make some sustainable revenue from sort of Acurex Plus contracts with uh, clinical commissioning groups who sort of sit above GP practices um, in the NHS structure. Good. And uh, Series B? Yeah, potentially on the cards this year. And um, we're, we're in a position where we don't have to do it in, immediately. But obviously, off the, off the back of both the, the growth from the uh, work we did in the beginning of COVID and the sort of vaccine work and, yeah, uh, commercializing the product, it, we're, we're definitely feeling in a sort of good position. But there's, yeah, lots more we also want to prove. If you've got 99% market share, what do you strategically do? Is like, What are your options at this point? 
I think for us at the moment, I mean, whilst we're we're definitely interested in being an international com- um, company, and ultimately our, our vision is definitely cross border. Every patient and clinician needs to be able to contact each other. We definitely want to go deep here first, and both with our GP product. There's, there's so much more we still feel we can do with the GP product, but also moving moving outside of GP. So we we already do some work with some hospital trusts and. You know, ultimately, we we see so much value in being able to connect up those two areas. So, say primary to secondary care to district nursing to pharmacy. You know, we we consider ourselves a sort of communication platform. So, the more the more links in the network, the more value we think we can provide. So, it definitely feels like even within the NHS, it's still very early days for us. Next up, you'll find out what it's like to be at the centre of the vaccine delivery machine for COVID and how you preserve customer service, culture and morale when going through explosive growth under the immense pressures of a pandemic. Stay tuned. Business banking can really suck, which is why we've partnered with Revolut Business and are offering you an exclusive deal you can't find anywhere else. Revolut Business is a super easy, powerful and personalised account. We use it at my own startup, Heights, and for good reason. You can send and receive money at the interbank rate with no hidden fees and open accounts in more than 28 currencies. You can get physical and virtual cards for you and your team so you can track spending, set limits, pay for subscriptions and ad spend or freeze cards in one tap. But what I like the most is you can integrate with all your apps or plugins like accounting and expenses and manage your finances easily all from one place so you can focus on your actual business goals. We've partnered with Revolut Business to bring you an exclusive two-month paid plan for free so you can move your business forward. Go to revolut.com slash secret leaders to claim your free two-month trial. That's revolut.com slash secret leaders. So how did you actually get involved with the vaccine booking system? And like, how did you build it given that there were no users in theory? Yeah, so it, in some ways, it's a bit of a similar story to, to COVID round one, where, you know, it became, it became clear that GP practices and uh, primary care networks were going to be involved in the vaccine rollout. And so we started to have conversations internally, like, you know, we often do, is this something we want to be involved in? Can we, can we take a product team? Can we afford to take a product team off what they're working on, put them onto this? We even published a blog about the sort of role that we thought software should help play in the vaccine rollout. And like a lot of these things, I think, you know, our company processes were maybe a little bit more in place um, sort of back end of that year. So we did actually have a proper go, no go meeting on the Friday, the 13th of November, where we gathered a few sort of senior people together and said, do we want to do this? We need to make the decision today, because if we don't basically make the decision today, there's not enough time to build anything. And so for us, that came down to, you know, does this align with our mission? What are some of the second and third order effects on the organization? And have we got a team that can even pull this off? For us, we we were happy with sort of each of those three things. And so we went to the team and asked them that we thought, you know, we're going to work on this. Is this something you want to do? It's really important for us that the, the team are brought into the decision as well. They should have a right to refuse this being thrown on them. And they said, yes, this is something we want to do. And so the Monday following that, so on the 15th, we were already doing whiteboarding sessions of like, what does this solution look like? 
Amazing. What do you think people would have done if, like, company? Well, basically, you guys hadn't come along. Like, how would we be booking our vaccines? So there, there are there are some other solutions out there, and and there is a a separate sort of software solution for for the national booking sites. So there are both you know mass vaccination sites and then sort of like local vaccinations. And within the sort of GP local vaccinations, there are other providers. I guess yeah, it's it's hard to to, to know exactly. We'd like to obviously think that we've had a, had an impact, and in particular because we've helped book a lot of vaccines of self-service via our sort of text messaging and link technology we'd hope that that saves a, a you know a large amount of nhs time and helped sort of drive efficiency i think one of the incredible things about the nhs is they always find a way no matter what so i i'd never sort of go be as arrogant as to say without us it wouldn't have still been a success i think they they do always manage too well but i certainly hope that we've we've made an impact and have made it a little bit easier and allowed people to maybe, you know, go home that hour earlier each day when they're trying to get through lots of patients. Yeah, I mean, I read that a third of vaccine bookings in the UK now happened through your platform. Is that right? I think it's it's roughly it's roughly around that. Yeah. Why do you think there isn't just like one simple booking system for the whole country? Or is that just a stupid question? No, no, it's not, it's not a stupid question at all. I think, I think there's a couple of reasons. I mean, I think the first one and say it's like no one's ever done this before, right? It's just such like uncharted territory. And actually the the decision, I think, to use GP practices and primary care networks to vaccine, uh, vaccinate people happened quite late on. I think it was definitely the correct decision. I think it's been really, really effective using them. But I think that that did happen sort of late on. So that did mean that the national booking system, I don't think was going to be sort of used there. And GP practices obviously do already book lots of appointments and sort of uh, and give things like flu jabs out. I mean, ultimately, it's, it's always a bit of a trade-off. I think having multiple systems or two different systems, it can be really good in lots of ways. It's allowed us to focus on our use case and try and make it so that it works really, really well for those use cases. Massivac sites are very different. Up until now, I think they've only given AstraZeneca. They book both jabs at once. Oh, the main problem we've found is that um, we don't have knowledge of when people do have an appointment at the mo- in like a, a national booking system. And so patients have, might receive, for example, like two invitations. So it, at the pace the program has been rolled out, we haven't all been talking to each other about who's got appointments where. And I, I mean, that's something we're looking to correct sort of at the moment. But, you know, at the, at the speed the program's rolled out, that was always going to be a slightly secondary concern of if someone gets two invitations, that's a hell of a lot better than getting zero. Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, is that one of your biggest challenges? Has it been receiving like negative feedback on, like, I guess, some of like the smoothness of of the products on the basis of how fast you've had to bring this out? And has that been difficult to deal with? If that's the case, I think it's definitely the case that it's it's the quickest we've ever had to roll out an incredibly complex product. You know, you look back to the beginning of COVID when we we added video consultations in a weekend. May, may sound really impressive, but we we had so much infrastructure we could already sort of build on top of. It actually was really a sort of increment there. Whereas this was just like something completely from scratch. I mean, we had the ability to send text messages, you know, in, in bulk and lots of other things, but we really were starting from scratch. And as you mentioned earlier on, no one even knew what this product should look like or do yet. And the sort of backdrop of the vaccine program is constantly changing, right? You know, December time, we moved from three to four weeks to 11 to 12 weeks between do- doses. And definitely the right decision, but means your software's got to change each time that happens. And so I think we've, we've definitely felt both, um, yeah, at times people getting frustrated with the software because 
when you try and automate things, it then means sometimes people can't do things in the way they want. And we've also tried to build it in such a way that it works for like most people, but that also mostly means that then it quite often doesn't fit each person's use case. You know, you're trying to sort of be this wedge in the middle that just about make, works for everyone, which means it sort of doesn't really work perfectly for anyone. And that's like a massive product trade-off. And, you know, we've been stressed during this period building it. The NHS news have been really stressed trying to deliver the vaccines well. And we've, we've definitely, I think it would be fair to say, both felt each other's stress in, in that. It's definitely been harder for the team, I think, this time around than, say, last March when things um, really accelerated. And it's, it's a lot of the criticism has been fair as well, right? Like when, when users get in touch and say, this isn't working for me, it's, they're not saying it unfairly either. And often the feedback's really useful. And um, so part of our role is just to try and remain calm, like collect that feedback and work out what our next best step is. Does that affect morale when you're getting sort of irritated feedback like that though? It definitely has. Like it's, I think what's been difficult is that we... We're a very, very like user research led company and we, we love spending time on the front line with users. And, you know, one of the things we used to do pre-COVID is go out to GP practices really, really regularly. And I think the sort of emotional connection you get from watching someone use something that you've built in person gives you like this massive energy boost where you go back to the, you know, at Correct HQ and you're like, I can't wait to fix some of these problems, help that person out. And we've just not had that over the last few months. So you know, for both our users and for us, a lot of the sort of like connections through WhatsApp or Facebook or our sort of online support chat. And so it's easy to forget that there's another person at the other end of that who might have built the software or for us that they're, they're trying to get home and your software is just not working for them and they're going to be like stressed out. And I think that's actually the biggest thing I found that it's it's hard to keep that energy going and to see firsthand the impact you're having because, yeah, there are there are going to be people getting touched saying it doesn't work for them, but it's easy to forget. There are loads of people every single day who are booking completely seamlessly and that's providing an incredible service and really easy during, you know, lockdown and you're not seeing your friends getting break to focus on, on those things ultimately. Yeah, what has been your biggest challenge as you've, like scaled the company over the last year you know if we we sort of look back over the last year the first challenge was the the sort of hiring remotely one for us uh, something we hadn't done obviously going from 50 to 99 percent of gps we we were sort of overstretched as a team and in, you know we were only 25 people and then supporting a huge number of gp practices so i think that was very much our first challenge to go through um over sort of summer last year I think, yeah, then, yeah, the last few months with, with the vaccine program, it's much more been sort of around burnout and balance of the team. You know, one of, one of our company values is balance. And for us, that's always meant if people are, like, happy and healthy, both inside and outside of work, they can do their best work. And that we should have a good sort of balance between sprints where we need to get something over the line and then making sure people can recover from that. And this has been a sprint for many, many months, basically. And that is just unsustainable for people. This is unsustainable for the team working on it, for the senior leadership, uh, for myself and my co-founder. You know, eventually that has a really big impact on you, especially when you haven't got some of those other, you know, joys in life of going to the gym or seeing your friends at the restaurant to go to. So that has been a huge, huge challenge for us. And it's been particularly difficult because it's not really a pressure that we have artificially like created. So we also can't artificially back off it, right? You know, 
if the vaccine program does change or we need to adapt our software or more people sign up to use the vaccine uh, booking software, it's very, very hard to, to like say no to that or turn away from it, uh, right? So that's just been really, really tricky. And I've definitely both felt, you know, both the pressure myself and then felt awful for almost having put like the team through it in a sense. And sort of, I guess when we asked them to go back to what I said, when we asked them, do you want to work on this? I don't think any of us quite realized the Herculean effort that would be required over such a long time to actually deliver it. How do you reconcile emotionally with this concept of like one of your guiding values is balance, but actually the reality, you know, the intention of saying that, but the reality is so different. So you're essentially running a company that is fundamentally every day operating the opposite way of one of your own values. That must be difficult as a founder to reconcile and must be hard culturally for the team. Yeah, it's, it's been really, really tough. And it, one of our other values is, is being mission-driven. So you've also sort of got one of your values you're almost trying to live out to the full, which has meant you've started to betray this other value. And yeah, I think culturally, it's, it, becomes, it becomes very worrying. You know, you start to worry, are people going to get to the end of this period? And then are they going to leave and say, well, it was cool what we did, but I, can't, I just can't do that again. For new joiners in particular, started to really worry that they think this is our sort of standard way of operating. And you, you're trying to say, hey, this is, this is different to, to usual. I think ultimately, what we've always tried to do is get to a point of just calling a spade a spade. And so I think the best thing to do is try and be transparent about it and say, we have betrayed one of our values here and we are really sorry about this and it is not going to be forever. And we did used to operate differently as a company. And try and give almost permission as much as possible to other people to then call you out if that doesn't if that shift does not occur we also use an employee engagement tool called pecan to sort of survey um, people every week about how they're feeling so that's something you know at senior leadership level we take really seriously about people's responses to that and some of it is around workload but yeah i think it's got to be honesty you can't people know as you said you're operating basically against one of the things you've put up on the wall and to basically not just call it out is going to make this massive elephant in the room. What's been your biggest challenge over the last couple of years? I mean, other than sort of very much on like a personal level, like the last the last few months and, and sort of working so hard, some of our biggest challenges have been probably like pre-series A, like getting someone to like believe in us um, and, you know, say like, hey, this is, this is something special. I guess there was a year when we were growing growing loads and like people lots of gps seem to be signing up but it still seemed really hard to get someone to like back us and um, i guess like healthcare yeah it's it's sometimes like a tricky tricky space right and so that that was really really hard and it took a really long time for us to eventually like get our, our um, financing round over the line and that was a really hard sort of sustained challenge i think the other big challenge and um, the companies will always face right that is is continually trying to hire fast but not break your culture and that's something that is an everlasting challenge that we think about all the time and it's really really at front of center of our minds right now because we're going through quite a lot of hiring as i mentioned we're 80 now i think we're probably going to be around 150 or more by the end of the year and so how you keep doing that and you know, telling stories and trying to pass on some of that organizational memory to new starters of like, why are we here? What are the decisions we've made? You know, how do you try and go about product decisions? Have you talked to a user? Those things, I think, 
have always been a challenge and will continue to be one. Like, how do you protocolize those and pass those lessons on? What about at home? I mean, I think really the big challenge for me has pretty much been over the last few months there. Like, in general, I, I did find that maybe because one of our company values was balanced, that actually, even though I was a founder, I did manage to, I felt, have the right balance for me most of the time between Acurex and home. Always, you know, always try to make sure I did the things that I guess were important to me and made me feel like me. So whether that was going out for a couple of runs a week, seeing my friends for like at the weekends at the pub, but definitely during the, during the pandemic uh, in general. And then over the last few months, that swung completely, you know, out of kilter and pretty much every single night, I must've been horrible for my partner because I, I was just basically completely absent. Even if you're in the room, you're sort of absent, right? Because you're constantly checking Slack or going back to work and I was very lucky that she both put up with me and, you know, helped like feed me and do some of our washing and things like that. That was really, really tough. You, you know, you're sort of like in that situation, but it also feels very, very hard to know sort of what to do. And I felt such a great responsibility to, to both her, but then also to like the team and our mission. And I find it very hard. It's particularly for like a user's getting in touch on Twitter at like 9 p.m. Like, can you help me? I find it almost impossible to ignore that. So I found that sort of switching off element and like giving giving enough time to to being with her really really tricky. Yeah, I mean I relate to this a lot, and it's kind of why I, why I was asking, and I think a lot of people listening that have experienced co living in in the pandemic and actually you know being having either survive their business uh, if it's not thriving and how to deal with that and that nine pm tweet that comes in when you're a business that you know, needs that customer or you're at breaking point because you're growing so fast and you need to make sure that that customer is satisfied. You know, I'm just curious how your relationship behind the company had developed over the last period, but I know that you're going on holiday next week. So you're finally getting some respite away from it all. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That, that will be nice to switch off and definitely owe it to, owe it to my partner's shrine actually mute slack for at least some hours of the day so so that i'm not like distracted by it all and i'm also lucky that i think we outside of just my partner had like a strong support network at work and we you know we put a lot of time into building our sort of senior leadership trust levels over over the last year and so you know we do a temperature check at the beginning of every senior leadership meeting and there, it's very, very useful to be able to openly in front of other people have your sort of your thumb pointing towards down and be like, I'm not super right right now. I'm, I am pretty stressed and I'm pretty burnt out. And I think that helps a lot knowing that you've got those people around you and they'll say, that's all right. Yeah, it makes sense. So what's next for AccuRx then? For us uh, this year, a big, a big part of it will be now we've commercialized that GP product, not at all letting it sit there and making it even better and, you know, using the money we're lucky enough to, to have been given through, um, you know, NHS CCGs to, to make the product fantastic and then investing in um, outside of primary care. So, you know, really, really keen to work out what bits of our product can be really useful to people in pharmacies, district nursing, hospitals, and lots of different use cases there. And ultimately, you know, our dream would be to then start to connect them up to, to primary care. We're all, you know, very familiar with sort of letters going between different parts of the healthcare system. We'd love to try and make some of that a little bit slicker this year. 
Yeah, I mean, I read online that, you know, one of your biggest um, criticisms, which, you know, isn't at you really, but just the way that it's happened is just a lack of competition, right? You've got 99% market share. So, yeah, I think for us, A, we'd always see competition as, as a healthy thing. Uh, it's really good to make sure that we continue to try and provide really good software for, for, you know, people in the NHS and that they get the best software for ultimately the taxpayers' money that's like going there. And we, we, you know, want to stay, stay on our toes and we need to keep like improving, improving the product ultimately. So I think for us, we, we believe more the former that the competition is going to be really healthy and we're, we're a big believer in let users be choosers. So ultimately we, you know, we always feel that there should be budget there for um, IT in, in the health system and that that budget should be ideally as devolved as possible so that you as a, someone who runs a general practice can say, I want to choose that correct. Or if you're not finding it up to scratch, you can try something else. And then, you know, ideally that switching costs should be low enough that you can switch and make, and come back, for example, as well. So I think we would hope it would always be more of the former, that users should be in control. And then the responsibility solely lies on us to keep producing fantastic software to go and Stay true to our roots, ultimately, go and speak to users, see what they're doing, what are their user needs, what are their pain points. And I'm a big believer if we keep doing that, like what's got us here, then I hope we can stay you know, close to that 99%. And if we're slipping from that, it probably means we're doing something different to what, to what got us here. Love it. Thank you so much, mate. It's been a massive pleasure. Thanks, Dan. It's been really, really good to chat. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. The taxi situation in Thailand was just horrible. They wouldn't show up on time, their quality was poor, the prices were high. I literally spent the next four months going to the taxi stands in Tallinn and trying to sign up the drivers one by one. You're stuck to this one taxi company, you need to pay them a monthly fee, they don't guarantee you any income. But what if you would have a no-risk proposition? You could just download this app. You only pay if you actually get any rides, to which 90% of them immediately said, get the fuck out of my car. Next week, we've got one of Europe's youngest unicorn founders on the show as the Uber competitor Bolt joins us in the studio to talk about how their surprising and meteoric rise has gone so far. Tune in or you'll miss out. If you're enjoying our show and you're happy to help us, please can you get out your phone right now and rate us on your favorite podcast player because that's the stuff that actually makes a difference. Thanks so much. This episode was hosted by me, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Lower Street Media.